There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The Northern Lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge, I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say in his homely way that he'd sooner live in hell. On Christmas Day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold through the parka's fold, it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars o'erhead were dancing heel and toe. He turned to me and, Cap, says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no, then he says with a sort of moan. It's the cursed cold and it's got right hold till I'm chilled clean through to the bone. Yet taint being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried, horror-driven. With a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say you may tax your brawn and brains, but you promised true, and it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb in my heart, how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, Howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathe the thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow. And on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in. And I'd often sing to the hateful thing and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake Labarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a trice it was called the Alice May. 
And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I, with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying around, and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear. But the stars came out and they danced about ere again I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left Plumtree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge, I cremated Sam McGee. You've been listening to The Cremation of Sam McGee by the great English poet Robert Service. This is James Newcomb, and yes, you are in fact listening to the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. This is a little project that I did earlier this year. I think it was in the summer, maybe late spring, early summertime. And I I just wanted to record it. My uncle used to recite that poem to us when we were children, and I... It just through the luck of the draw, I, I ended up with a book of Robert Service poetry from my grandparents when it was um, time to clean out their estate. And uh, there it is, one of my favorites. It's a story of dedication and just keeping your promise, even, even when it's uh, not convenient, even when it's a life and death situation. You keep your promise, you make a promise. A, a promise made is a debt unpaid, as the as the line went in that poem. Uh, very memorable, very meaningful for me. It's a different way to start out a podcast, especially for trumpet, but it is very applicable to trumpet because there are many times, me personally, and maybe you can relate to to this sentiment as well, where you make a promise, you make a commitment to trumpet, and it's just it's a burden. And it's, you, you, you wish that you could be done with it, but you made a promise and you made a commitment 
and you're going to stick through it. The poem that you just heard, I think, is apropos for this interview that you're going to hear today. This was recorded uh, in 2016, if I recall. So it's been a good six years. And this was recorded very shortly after the passing of Zig Canstel, the founder of the Canstel Music or the Music Musical Instrument Company, I guess you'd call it. But he passed away in November of 2016. And I had an opportunity to interview a very close friend of Zig's, Dale Olson, who wrote a book about Zig Canstel. And it's talked about many times in this interview. The book is titled Zig Canstel, Last of the Great Masters, written by R. Dale Olson, forward by Arturo Sandoval. And it is on sale on a website called Horn Guy, The Horn Guys, hornguys.com. And I'm going to create a redirect. If you go to uh, type in trumpetdynamics.live forward slash zig book, trumpetdynamics.live forward slash zig book. That's going to redirect you to the uh, for the uh, the website on hornguys.com to purchase the book. It's not cheap, but sometimes that's the sign of a really high quality really uh, well worth your time book is when it isn't when it isn't cheap sometimes the cheap stuff is it's just a waste of everyone's time that is my opinion anyhow I have wasted enough of your time while we're on the topic I'm just going to get right into it this is my conversation from November of 2016 very shortly after the passing of Zig Canstel with R. Dale Olson Dale, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for asking me, and um, I will quickly digress to thank you for the work that you're doing for the trumpet community. Uh, the uh, interviews that you're doing are historically, I think, important, uh, not now, but 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, as long as they're preserved. So uh, I appreciate you asking me to, to chat with you today. Mm. Well... It's my pleasure, and like I said, I'm going to be learning right alongside most of the people listening to this. So, Dale, why don't we just start from the beginning? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How How is it that you got involved in the trumpet community? I'm sure you're a trumpet player yourself, but can we just get a brief background of you personally? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, originally, I'm from Galveston, Texas, on the Gulf Coast. Uh, I went to school at what is now called University of North Texas. At that time, it was North Texas State College. And I got a, <clears throat> a bachelor's degree in music education in 1956. Uh, and one year later, I got a, the first master's there ever given by the school in trumpet performance in 1957. And my teacher there was John Haney, who is a legendary teacher by now. John passed away about two years ago at the age of 90. So from there, uh, I during that time, I developed a very strong interest in trumpet technology and history and performance. And by performance, I mean, not only did I play professionally in, on the West Coast for many years, but in the mechanics of trumpet performance, uh, which I've lectured on quite a bit, embouchure, mouthpiece force, interoral air pressure, and all of the human mechanics of, of blowing a trumpet. I've done a lot of research in that area. And in uh, 
I guess 1959 and 1960, I was in Chicago, and I worked with Reynolds Schilke on various, at two or three different times I worked with Ren, and primarily I was interested in, in his research that he had done. So we became pretty good friends, and I learned uh, quite a bit about trumpet manufacture, design, and everything from Ren Schilke. Uh, during that time, I was offered the job as director of research for the F.E. Olds Company in Fordham, California. <clears throat> and in January of 1961, I went to California and interviewed with Reginald Olds, who was the president of the company, and they offered me the job as director of research. And at that time, we must go back a little bit in the chronology of events. The uh, company at that time, before that, did not have a director of research. Rather, the instruments were developed <clears throat> historically with a lot of the L.A. Uh, studio players and symphony players. And in the late 40s, about 1947, the Olds Company prior to World War II had basically produced professional-level horns. And following World War II, Maurice Berlin, who was the CEO and founder of Chicago Musical Instrument Company, they call it CMI, they were the primary, let's say they were the um, owners, essentially, of the Olds Company and the distributors. And following World War II, they perceived the forthcoming need for student model horns. And F.A. Reynolds, Foster Reynolds, uh, had a long career with the York Company and then the uh, King Company, and then he formed his own company in about 1935 in Cleveland, and he retired in a 46 or so right after the Second War. And Maurice Berlin from CMI hired F.A. out of retirement to move to California and to basically take charge of the Olds Company and to instigate a line of student horns. And he did that uh, very, very professionally. He did. He was very successful. They, one of the horns that they developed and produced at that time was the Ambassador Trumpet, which arguably is probably the most popular trumpet ever made. If you gauge it by the performance level, it's a very good horn, and by the numbers produced. So in about 1950, Zig Kanstel, from originally from the Minnesota, uh, from Minnesota, Minneapolis area, but Zig had been in the army in Kansas, working as a repairman after he uh, got out of the army, and he moved to L.A. and applied to the Olds Company and was hired. He had some trouble at the beginning at the factory, because the factory at that time. Uh, it was all populated by a very older group of workmen. And I don't think they resented Zig, but he certainly was the new guy on the block at the age of about 22. And he started building horns faster and better than the other guys could and set a little bit of a new benchmark by which they then had to produce. So he was... Um, I guess, as they, as they said about Foster Reynolds, he was not the most widely loved person 
in the industry, but he was the most widely respected. And I think Zig carried that mantle for a long time. Uh, in 54, the Olds Company moved from Los Angeles to their new home in Fullerton. And then in 61, I joined the company. And the first couple of days, I met Zig Cancel. And we, uh, I won't say we did not mesh, but I was from a different perspective than Zig. And there was a little bit of a rocky road. And at one point, I had only been there a couple of weeks, and I went to Reg Olds, who was the president. And I told him, I said, Mr. Olds, I said, I'm a little apprehensive about working with, with Zig Cancel because he and I think a little bit differently. Um, I came from more of an academic, uh, theoretical perspective, and he came from more of a hands-on uh, perspective. And Reg uh, he said, Dale, he says, no, he says, you're going to stay, and you're going to work with Zig, and you're going to learn from him, and he might learn something from you. Well, Zig uh, and I became friends and co-workers and for the rest of his life. Uh, I have a, always had a deep, deep respect for the man. And he was not always the most lovable character. So you will hear people that say, well, they couldn't get along with him, or he was hard to work with. And all those things are probably true. But he was a total, total master at what he did. A man of immense, immense generosity. And I could give you anecdotal experiences and uh, the recitations, which we won't go into now, but just suffice to say he was immensely uh, charitable with help to other musicians and otherwise. So we worked together um, at Olds from 61 until about 69, at which time I left the company. And one year later, Zig left. And the reason Zig left was because of changes in the parent company, that is CMI, in management. Maurice Berlin, the founder, had retired, and uh, his son, Arnie, and another gentleman took over management. And it was, the, uh, it was proven nine years later <clears throat> that the management at CMI was basically detrimental to the functioning of the O's company. And as we all know by now, in December of 1979, the Olds Company went out of business. It was not sold. The rights to the name were sold. But the company was auctioned off piecemeal. After that, Zig then uh, had a transient relationship with the Benj Company, which he ran, and then the King Company, which he ran, and then Con for a while before he started his own company. Uh, Zig and I were very close when we were working together. And then when he left in 1970 and I left in 69, we kept sporadic communication. And uh, then when he started Cancel Musical Instruments, the first job that he had, the first order he had was to reproduce the Besson trumpets for the Boozy Hawks Company. And Zig and I had, over the years, measured perhaps hundreds of old French Besson trumpets. And he called me, and we worked together quite a bit on deciding which of the French Besson trumpets was the most appropriate for him to duplicate. And 
I guess to uh, summarize it from 61 through 69 or 70, we worked very closely day to day. After that time, um, I served, I won't say a consultant to Vig, but I worked with him. When he had problems on certain things, he would call me. Many times when I had issues with, with various things I was working on, I would call him. And so it was a reciprocal agreement between two very dear friends by that time. And in the last, uh, oh, I guess since 1988, I've lived part-time in Orange County, California, and part-time in Fullerton, California, in um, Galveston, Texas. So every time I would go back to California, every couple of months, it was always a standard thing for me to go out to Zig's plan, and he and I would sit and visit and visit and visit and talk about horns. And as Zig uh, became a little bit more infirm, which is not that long ago, very frankly, uh, the relationship changed a little bit. Instead of instead of being the uh, we kidded each other quite a bit, and um, it, it became much, much more mellow because I really perceived that Zig was understand, understanding that he was pretty much at the end of the line at age 87. So I guess, uh, James, that's, that's the peaks of our relationship over many years. Well, something that you said piqued my interest, uh, he, you said that, when he arrived at the Olds Company, he was sort of making the other workers look bad with his, um, or he was sort of setting a new standard for production time. What did he do differently than what the factory was doing prior to his arrival? Well, let me answer that by starting from a different point. Uh, in June of last year, uh, the ITG held a conference here in Anaheim, California. That's about five minutes drive from Zig's factory. <clears throat> and my wife helped me, uh, Diane, and I, at Jack and Zig's request, we helped them establish a tour through the uh, uh, through the Castle factory for any of the ITG attendees who wanted to go. And we worked very closely with Brian Evans, our president from Australia, uh, Incidentally, a marvelous individual, if you don't know him. And uh, we established a tour the first day of the conference, and over 250 people toured the factory. And at that time, Jack asked me, Jack canceled six, one of six sons, Jack and Mark, another of his sons that run the factory now. They asked me <clears throat> if there was any way I could write a remembrance of Zig and perhaps have it ready by the next NAM show, National Association of Music Merchants, which is this coming uh, January. Well, I accepted that basically in honor of Zig, and I started writing the book. It is now nearly finished. And the premise of the book was the title, immediately the first title was Zig Cancel, Last of the Great Masters. And... I really came to believe even more than I had during my working life with Zig. I'd always felt this, but my research confirmed the book goes back to Samuel Graves in the early uh, 1800s and then goes to E.G. Wright, to um, Thomas Dudley Payne, and uh, Isaac Fisk, Jay Lathrop Allen, and a whole list of people that 
provide a real closely connected professional genealogy that culminated with Zig Cancel. So during the writing of this, it supported my original belief that Zig was not just a good horn builder, he was a near genius horn builder, extremely dexterous and what in the trade they call they call it great hands. So I think going back now to your question, <clears throat> I think what happened is when Zig came to the Olds Company, he had a wife and two children at that time. A third was born here or in California. He was an extremely ambitious, very, very hardworking individual. And I think when he became affiliated with what was then a very major name in the business, the F.E. Olds Company, I think he did it with a total passion to do the best he could do. And that was better than anybody else could do. I don't um, recall the numbers off the top of my head, but the Olds Company at that time, while they were still in Los Angeles, they had a practice of setting standards, <clears throat> quantitative standards. And I think, and the documents will answer this if I'm a little bit off on my numbers, but I think the standard for what they call mounting, that is the assembling of a trumpet was about 15 a day. That is the soldering part. That's not the vowels or the final or anything like that. It's just soldering together. I think each craftsman produced 15 trumpets a day. And before long, Zig was making 39 a day. Well, not only was he making a lot of horns, he was making a lot more money than anybody else because of the bonus system that was attached to that. He made 15 horns for a certain salary, and then from number 16 to however many he made, like 39, he was, uh, I think the bonus was 50 cents a horn. So if you figure that out, in $1950, <clears throat> he was making a very decent bonus. And that then caused the other mounters and the other assemblers, the other workers, to take note and figure that maybe maybe they should be working at a little bit better pace. So that did not last long. Everybody came to respect Zig immensely. And uh, I think at that point, Foster Reynolds, who had gone there in about 47, he immediately took notice of Zig. And when Zig had his first little problem, I'll state it that way, I don't know what it was, but when he had his first rocky road at Olds, the other guys would not help him. And it was F.A. Reynolds who said, okay, stay after work today and you're going to learn something. So it was F.A. who passed on a lot of his knowledge of constructing horns. So I think that's uh, the recall. I was not there at the time, but I, I've talked to Zig many times about that. And from other people, that's, I think, a fairly accurate recitation of the events of Zig's early days at the Old Scout. So it sounds like he it sounds to me like he didn't really um initiate any innovative ways of design. He just did what other people were doing only much faster. Well, that might be a very good as far as as far as the production, I think uh James you're you're absolutely absolutely right. In other words, he just did it better than anybody else. And um 
he did faster than everybody else. And F.A. Reynolds was a, a total, uh, well, I didn't know F.A. He died the year before I went to the Olds Company. But he was completely um, obsessed with quality, as was Zig. And any little thing that was wrong got rejected. So F.A. Reynolds was looking at somebody, instead of making 15 horns a day, he was making over double that. Well, you would expect that maybe he was he was uh, going through it, possibly, and lowering the quality. That was just not the case. F.A. was on top of it. Hmm. And, and all the other workers were, too. They wanted to make darn sure that whatever he was doing, he wasn't doing it at the expense of quality. So it was, you're, you're very accurate. He's basically doing the same thing everybody else is doing. He's doing better and faster. <laughs> what was the year that he started his own company? Uh, I'm going from memory, not from documents, but I think it was either 70, probably 72. Uh, things get a little bit murky to me now, although uh, Jack Canstall and Mark, Mark uh, Canstall can fill you in nearly on to the, to the month. But when Zig left Oles, he was always planning ahead. He did very few things off the shooting from the hip, so to speak. He planned ahead on whatever he was doing. He was very highly paid, and I can't quantify that. I don't know how much he was making at Olds, but he was one of the highest paid people in the factory when he left the Olds company in 1970. And basically the reason he left, and it's a, it's a story that's floated around the industry for years, but uh, I know it to be accurate. CMI was undergoing some significant changes in, in management and philosophy and everything else. And personnel was changing dramatically at CMI in Chicago. And periodically, uh, the person in Chicago who was responsible for the Olds Company, part of that business, would visit Fullerton. And for many years, that was Richard Madden, whom I worked for and worked with and was a highly respected man. And after I left and Dick Madden left, he, Dick, I think, passed away, and all the older people at CMI retired. One day, Zig got a call that his new boss from Chicago was coming into town and wanted to meet with him. So Zig met with him and offered to give him a tour through the factory. Well, the new boss says, no, it's not necessary. I don't need to see the factory. So Zig later that day made the decision. He says, if the guy that's running the old company doesn't really need to see, even be bothered with seeing the factory, it's maybe time that I leave because this is not going to last. That was in about 1970. And by 1979, the company was out of business. So Zig from there went to, uh, basically worked with, with Binge, and King Company bought the Binge Company, and he worked for King. They occupied a new factory in Anaheim, which is geographically, it abuts Fullerton, where the old factory was. So it was only a couple of miles away. That's where they built, they called it the Binge Factory, but Binge started making a lot of the horns for King. So it was a pretty good size operation by that, maybe 130 or 40, 50 workers. Then King had some problems, and Zig then started working with Khan, 
of all places, in Nogales, um, I guess in Nogales, Arizona, running that factory down there when Cohen was producing things in Nogales. But they were still living in Anaheim, so he would drive to Nogales on early Monday morning and work, or Sunday night, and work there all week, and then come back home for a day. That didn't last terribly long, and during that period of time is when he decided to start the Campstool Company. And at Olds, he was always uh, responsible to upper-level management in Chicago. At King, he was responsible to somebody back east in that time in Cleveland. And um, at Benz, he was responsible to somebody else. And at Con, he was responsible to somebody else. <laughs> and he wanted to not have to be responsible to anybody, and that's why he started the, the Canstall Company. Well, here we are in 2016, and uh, my next question is, what? It, uh, how how did Zig change the um, trumpet manufacturing, or maybe either in the production or maybe the business ways of doing business in the trumpet manufacturing? In what ways did he change uh, either the production means of production or the means of doing business? Uh, the first part I can answer a little with a little more authority than I can the the second part. Um, the, the way of doing business, I, I'm really not not competent enough to you know I'm not I'm not I'm not that sure about that. The the production of horns though though is um, is something I can address a little better. Uh, if Zig Cancel had a failing as a business owner. I think what it might have been is he produced too many different models of brass instruments. Uh, and by that, I don't know how many they ended up producing, but Zig was a total master at developing new instruments. Uh, for example, even... Um, compensating system tubas and, and baritone horns and things like that. Extremely complex instruments to envision, like how do you drill the holes? How do you make the crooks? How do you put the thing together? He was, uh, it was mind-boggling how, how smart he was at doing that. Uh, right now, and I don't know that, the, I think this has been pretty much the pattern all along, the Canstle Company does not inventory a lot of horns. By that, they don't they don't keep fifty or sixty or a hundred of every model in stock. It has to point come to the point now where basically they produce by order, and that is different than a lot of the big companies. Zig never did want to get too big. I mean, on on the level, he didn't want he didn't have stars in his eyes. Wanted to become another Bach or Yamaha. He strictly wanted to keep in his element. At 150, 100, uh, 150 workers, maybe at the maximum, maybe closer to 100 or 80 sometime. So he, that was very manageable. And uh, I think as far as the production is concerned, there's, all, there's a little cliche in the business that F.A. Reynolds didn't have to say anything. All he had to do was to walk through the factory a couple of times today, and that kept everybody on their toes. Hmm. And that same thing transfers to Zig. All Zig really had to do, I was there hundreds of times, and he said, let's, let's take a walk through. 
And he wouldn't say anything to anybody. But the fact that he was walking through, everybody knew he could assimilate a huge amount of input just by walking through the factory. If somebody was slowing down, if they had too many coffee cups in front of them on the bench. <laughs> so he, he ran an extremely efficient, high, high quality uh, operation. So that's as far as the procedure is concerned. As far as the sales, there are some things about the company I still don't know. They do have dealers, obviously, and they function essentially the same as most of the other companies as far as dealerships. There are certain discounts that are given. I don't think Zig was very innovative as far as selling. Um, he detested the marketing sales end of the business. I know that from very close experience back at Olds. So I think he was more focused on production and how to get things made and how to get them made very, very high quality and um, very efficient manner. Now, Jack Canstle now has taken over all of the sales uh, responsibilities, and he's probably as smart in marketing and sales as Zig was in making horns, although Jack and Zig, I'm sorry, Jack and Mark, both of the two sons, have both have, they've had, a lifeline, lifeline taught uh, time of, of research and working with brass instruments. They were they worked for Zig when he was at Olds. They came in at night and assembled wires. They moved with him when he worked for Bench, and they were young kids at the time. So they've had a lifetime experience making horns. But right now, Mark basically runs a factory, and Jack does all the sales. So as far as the innovations in sales, I don't know that I could address that, but. As far as the production, it was basically uh, Zig watching things very closely. So after um, <clears throat> once Zig once Zig started his company in '79, how long was it before he stopped? Like he stopped having a part in the day to day manufacturing. I, I assume that when he started, he was doing a lot of the actual handwork, building building instruments. But when did he? Stop doing that and stop sort of be more of more of a uh, supervisory role, like you were just describing. Well, I'll answer that in a glib sort of way. Okay, here we are in November of 2016. Zig quit the bench. I would say in April or May of this year. Really? <laughs> yes. Really. Wow. And he was forever a bench worker. That's what he dearly liked. That's what he loved. And that's what he did. Now he didn't show up. He didn't, he didn't work on the bench producing horns, but he worked on the bench developing horns. And, um, he just had to keep involved in building horns. Uh, he did, a an interview. He did two interviews for NAM, the national association of music merchants, oral history program. And those are two that are for people interested in this sort of thing that we're talking about now. Uh, I would suggest strongly that they go retrieve those from NAM. They have them in the archives in California, in Carlsbad, California. But one of Zig's quotes, when they were talking to him, he says, I just like making horns. I really, really like making horns. <laughs> and Zig worked his pattern is he awoke. He had a small apartment in the factory. That's where he lived. 
And he awoke at four in the morning, had coffee, walked around and opened the factory, turned the lights on. And he was the last one to lock it up and turn the lights off at night. And then Sig would go to his personal little workbench and work on horns. He might have taken a couple hours off on Sunday to watch a football game, but that was about it. He worked every hour of every day up until he was 87 in March, his past March. So he worked a couple of months beyond his 87th birthday. <laughs> so That's amazing. He was hands-on the whole time. Wow. Well, can you, can you, uh, are you doing okay on time? I'm fine on time. Yes. yes. Okay. I've great. Got, I've open-ended time. Okay. Um, just just for a layman like me, what is the difference between like just producing a horn and developing a horn? Because you made that distinction. What is the difference? Oh yeah. Well, producing a horn, um, anyone with what like uh, the term I use, good hands. Anybody that has that manual dexterity and accuracy <laughs> and good hands can be taught. Probably a layman not knowing anything about music, could be taught how to solder a trumpet together. Some parts of a trumpet are silver soldered, that is hard soldered, and some are soft soldered. Uh, the mounting of a trumpet, that is what we would call the production of the trumpet, is basically a soft soldered job, and anyone with, with good dexterity and, and intelligence can be taught to do that. Developing a horn is when you start from scratch. Uh, doing something new. As one example, probably in the 70s, I guess late 70s or early 80s, Roger Voisin, the famous principal trumpet of the Boston Symphony at that time, wanted a C, uh, basically a C trumpet that was D and E flat, as I recall. Uh, a very awkward instrument to build. And Zig worked and developed that new horn. And to develop a new horn, he developed what they call the Gemini model for Herb Alpert, which is basically a, a horn with two bells. One of them is fitted with a mute, and a hundred years ago, they called it the Echo Cornets. But all of those things take a tremendous insight into where did the where do the slides go? How do they connect with the pistons? Where are the ports and the how do the ports and the pistons connect with the slides? So. If you're developing a new horn, that means you're starting to develop one that hasn't been built before. And production is one where you uh, produce something repeatedly. There was always a kind of a, a joke between Zig and I that I would tell him, Zig, I want, I want you to build me a piccolo flugelhorn. <laughs> and I want to have a five-valve piccolo and i want the fourth valve to put it down two octaves and i want a second slide tunable trigger on it and zig would say well i, I can have it ready by tomorrow about three <laughs> <laughs> so we that would be developing a new horn and i think zig uh candidly james i think zig his forte, and I think the thing he loved more than anything, was developing. That is, coming up with something new, rather than production. I think F.A. Reynolds, whom I did not know, and this is by inference only, I think F.A. Reynolds 
was exactly the opposite. I think he liked production rather than developing. Hmm. Well, this is fascinating. Um, my, my my final question is uh, not having to do with the Zig Cancel, but would you be willing to come back on the podcast and talk about sort of the history or the chronology of trumpet manufacturing? Oh, I'd love to, yeah. I, okay. I enjoy this sort of thing. Yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> well, let's... Uh, let's after we're There's done no with, short answers, James. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that, too. <laughs> well, once we're done at this, we can, uh, maybe in a couple of months, we can we can work something out. But that in the meantime, in the meantime, this was great for me to um, hear the history, uh, sort of put a, a personality behind the name of, uh, of a brand that I know, and probably most of us listening to this know. But um, Dale, you've been gracious with your time. I really appreciate it, and this was a lot of fun. Well, I look forward to seeing you again, talking to you again, and uh, it's my understanding that the book, and the name of the book is Zig Canstall, Last of the Great Masters, and um, I'm writing it, but I don't know if you know Rob Stewart. Rob is the foremost restorer of historic instruments in the world. They probably live in Arcadia, California, and Rob is the technical editor. He's keeping me honest on everything. And Arturo Sandoval is writing the, the forward. Um, nobody's making any money on the book. And it's going to be available through Canstall Company, I think probably mid to late January. And at that time, if you and I are in com- communication, I'm going to make darn sure they send you a copy, okay? Okay. Well, why don't we... Um why don't we do that second interview right around the time of the release of the book? That would be perfect, and you can take a look at that, and that'll generate some more questions, I'm sure. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit TrumpetDynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode. And we'll be in your earballs soon.